Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis and grateful that you are here with me for yet another interview. Well, I'm so happy to have Charles Oldham with me. He is a native son of North Carolina and an attorney who served a term as president of the Lee County Bar Association and had a legal practice that focused on criminal defense and civil litigation. His first book, the award-winning The Senator's Son, was published in 2018. He's here today to talk about his most recent work. It's a book called Ship of Blood, Mutiny and Slaughter, aboard the Harry A. Berwind and the Quest for Justice. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. So where did you first hear about the story, and did you pretty quickly realize that it was a story that you wanted to write a book about. Well, definitely. And I, uh, I came across it really, really just by chance. Like you mentioned, this is uh, ship of blood is my second book. And after my, after we published my first one back in 2018, I knew that I wanted to find, find another subject for a second book. And I came across the story of the Berwyn mutiny just by chance. Uh, there was a, uh, there was an article written about it in the North Carolina Historical Review, was published back in 2014. And later on, I just came, came across that article by chance. It was about 20 pages long or so, and it was just a, uh, it was very good, very good, um, thorough, but fairly brief summary of the events that took place in the case. And when I, when I saw that, I was, I was really, really amazed. I mean, I was surprised that I had, I had never heard of the case before, and I was even more surprised that no one had ever ever written a full documented account of the story, at least in, in published form. And so this was really just a just a, a lucky coincidence on my part that I came across that because I figured, well, here's my second book right here. And um, so I, I went with that, and um, it was another another true crime story that uh, occurred in eastern North Carolina back in the early 1900s. Around the around the same time and same time and place as uh, the subject of my of my first book, so so again that was a really uh, really 
lucky discovery that I made. Absolutely, yeah. So the story revolves around a schooner which operated off the Carolina coast in 1905, again, as you said, named the Harry A. Berwind. Mm-hmm. Would you give us a brief history of the Berwind, what the ship was used for, and what it would have been like to serve on that ship during that time? Sure. Yeah, the Berwind, it was a, it was a commercial vessel, and it was what they called a wooden schooner. It was uh, built back in the 1890s, around that time. And it was used for uh, carrying freight, uh, mostly around the, the eastern coast of, of the United States, from Gulf of Mexico up into New England and so forth. It wasn't what you would call a, like a transatlantic ship, but it was, uh, it was the type of vessel that was used for carrying uh, either coal or lumber, things like that, uh, along the eastern coast of the U.S. And it was a sailing vessel. It had uh, four masts. And uh, carried on this particular voyage in 1905, there were eight people aboard. Uh, four of them were, were officers, and four of them were called uh, crew members. And in this particular event, which was in um, October of uh, 1905, the vessel was uh, it was sailing from uh, from Mobile, Alabama, on its way up to Philadelphia, and it was carrying a, a load of lumber. And the the events that I write about in the book, uh, they just happened to, to take place off the coast of North Carolina. And uh, as far as the living conditions on board the ship, you just try to try to put yourselves in the position of these, these eight men who were living on board this ocean-going vessel, which was made entirely of wood, powered by sail. We tend to, we tend to romanticize uh, the sea-going life sometimes, those of us who like, who like pirate stories and that type of thing. But uh, it was really hard work. I mean, these guys, they were having to, they had to do all the work on board the ship by hand, basically. Uh, and they had to, they were carrying, they were carrying this load of lumber, which they had to physically load on board the ship. And actually previously in the, in the voyage, they had been, they had carried a load of coal from, from Philadelphia down to Cuba and there from up to, up to Mobile, Alabama, everything done by hand. So, so, um, Life was hard back then. It was very hard work, and as you might imagine, the guys who served on board that ship were under under quite a bit of stress most of the time. And sometimes that that type of working environment can, can lead to to tension, and that's what happened in this case. Yeah. Before we get into the into the the rough stuff, would you briefly tell us about the crew of the Berwind? Their names and positions. Yeah. Well, there were, as I mentioned, there were eight people on board. Uh, four of them were officers. Uh, the captain of the ship, his name was Ed Rummel, and he was a middle-aged guy. He was from uh, a small town in uh, Maine. He was the captain, and he had uh, he had three other officers who were serving under him. He had a first mate and a uh, another fellow who was called the engineer. And what he did, his job was primarily to... Uh, to take care of the, uh, this uh, sort of low-powered engine that they had on board the ship, which actually was not used to propel the ship. It was only used to um, power the, uh, the, the winches that were used to um, hoist freight on and off of the ship. Uh, but he was the engineer. And then there was also a cook who, as you, as you might imagine, he was responsible for uh, preparing all the meals. So there were those four guys. And in addition to them, there were four sailors. That was the only title they have title they had they were they were just the sailors and their job was to do the the menial 
grunt labor, which was, uh, as you might imagine, unloading and uh, loading the ship and that type of thing. And uh, just day-to-day operation, uh, keeping watch over the ship and um, you know, swabbing the decks, making sure the sails were properly properly mended and so forth. There was just a lot of... Uh, a lot of labor involved, and it was a 200-foot vessel, so a fairly, fairly good size, good size ship. And as you might imagine, a lot of work to be done by those eight men. So on October 10th, 1905, Captain John W. Taylor, who is master of the schooner called the Blanche H. King, he and his crew were sailing off of the North Carolina coast, and he was a few miles from the tip of Cape Fear when he noticed something odd through the darkness. Correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, this other vessel, they came, they came across the, the Burwind. Uh, they actually intercepted them just uh, several miles off the, off the coast of Cape Fear, North Carolina. And what they noticed was that the Burwind was uh, sailing erratically. And it appeared, it seemed like the, the ship had been, had been disabled in some way. And when the fellows on board this other vessel, the King, came alongside the Burwind, they were looking aboard to try to figure out what was, what was going on aboard the, uh, aboard the vessel. And they heard this voice calling out to them across the water, saying, Please help us. We want to be taken off of this vessel because a man has killed the captain and all the officers, and we want to be taken off of the vessel. They were very concerned, obviously, and so they, they took a, a small boat, a, a landing boat, and they, several of the men from the, uh, the other vessel approached the Burwind, and they went over to the, uh, to the Burwind, and they climbed aboard very carefully, sort of watching very close to, closely to see what was going on, and they found a bloody scene. And what they found was um, there was one of the crewmen, from the Burwin was lying dead on the deck, and one of the other one of the other crewmen was tied up. He had been um, it looked like he had been tackled by the other two crewmen, and he had been bound hand and foot, and he was tied down to the to the deck. And the other two the other two crewmen were still alive, and they were they were telling different stories at the time. But they said, "Well, this other guy who's been tied up, he killed all four of the officers on board the ship." and threw their bodies overboard. So out of that, that original complement of eight men on board the vessel, uh, five of them were now dead. Uh, one of them was, uh, his body was on the deck, the other four had been tossed overboard. There were three men still alive, and as it turned out, they were gonna be telling different stories about who did what and who killed whom. And it, long and short of it is that what they discovered was a, a multiple murder scene. Now, Taylor, couldn't legally take over the ship unless he knew its captain had been incapacitated in some way. Yes. And that was one of the first questions they asked uh, these surviving members of the crew. Where is the captain? Yeah, that's true. Legally, he had to, uh, he had to um, ascertain what the status of the, uh, of the vessel was. So he and his men, they searched through the vessel. They couldn't find the, the four officers. So they immediately determined that they were, that, uh, just as the, as the guy had said, they had been murdered and they had been tossed overboard and they found, um, they found bloodstains in several different places on board the ship, which tended to, uh, to corroborate that, uh, that claim. 
Right. So the next day, the crew boarded the Burwind to look around. They were obviously not trained to properly investigate a crime scene. True. What did they find? Well, they found bloodstains in several places on board the ship. And as you might have, might imagine, the vessel was in some, some disarray. They went in the captain's cabin. And they found it was uh, it was a bit disheveled, like somebody had uh, thrown some papers around. But surprisingly, they found the ship's log, which was still intact, and that was sitting on the captain's desk, and it was right there. Um, and that later became a piece of evidence in the in the murder trial. And the two the two sailors who who were still still walking around, who had tackled the third man, one of them actually handed um, handed the the officers from the king. A pistol. So there was at least one pistol that was recovered from the from the ship. So the surviving crewmen, and again there were two that were free, Adams and Sawyer, and one that was tied up, Scott. Yes. They gave the crew of the King their story. Did the captain believe what they were saying? No, not at all. As you as you might imagine, they uh, they were going to, or the men from the King, as they were trying to figure out what in the world happened. Their inclination was to take all three of these guys into custody. They put them in handcuffs and took them back over to their own vessel and locked them up in the ship's brig. Uh, their their purpose, of course, was to secure the scene and ask the questions later. So, what they did was after they after they secured the scene and sent some more of their men over to the Berwyn to make sure that it was it was properly manned, they then took both of the both of the vessels into the nearest port which was Southport, North Carolina, at the, the mouth of the Cape Fear River. And then those three men that they had apprehended, they handed them over to federal authorities. So the fact that this is North Carolina in 1905, the surviving crew members were black. That's true. Those killed were white. The officers were white. Yeah. John Coakley was black. Yeah. Yeah. One, one of the other sailors was black. Uh, but the four officers who were killed and tossed overboard, uh, Captain Rummel, also the first mate, the uh, the engineer and the cook, all of them were white. So essentially what you had was um, five men dead, four of them were white, and there were three black men still alive and uncertain as to exactly who did what. So as you might imagine, those three African-American sailors, they ended up, they all three of them ended up charged with mutiny and murder. And North Carolina during this time was not an easy place for them to find a sympathetic ear. Yeah, that is absolutely true. Um, Eastern North Carolina in the early 1900s was in the very, the very worst days of the white supremacist era and the Jim Crow era. And um, the Wilmington, North Carolina area in particular was a, a hotbed of, of exactly that type of thing. So it was probably the most the most, one of the most inhospitable places where a black man could possibly find himself facing legal proceedings like that. And there was some, some dark and, and fairly recent history, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. As it turned out, um, these, um, these three men, after they were charged with mutiny and murder, they were put on trial in Wilmington, North Carolina, which is the, the nearest um, large port in eastern North Carolina. And at the time, it was the largest city in North Carolina, period. And again, this was 1905. Um, just seven years earlier, in 1898, 
uh, Wilmington was the scene of what we now call the infamous uh, Wilmington race insurrection. This is, and this is something that uh, we've only become become aware of recently through the through the efforts of a lot of uh, a lot of modern historians because uh, this is a story that was it was <clears throat> submerged and um, it was uh, kind of hidden away for a long time because it's it's so so regretful and and shameful but what occurred in 1898 was that a essentially a white supremacist mob that was um, very well organized maybe mob is not the right not the right word to use but there was a there was a very a very calculated fully planned and, and very violent insurrection in Wilmington whereby this group of white supremacists overthrew the city government which up to that time had been surprisingly progressive surprisingly uh, biracial it included both whites and african americans but um, politics in 1898 turned very turned very nasty and uh, this group of white supremacists, they, they took control of the city by force, and it turned into a, a, a very violent, um, a running battle through the city with uh, men armed with, uh, armed with rifles and machine guns, and they went roaming through the city, and they, they killed probably about 60 black people total. Uh, a lot of folks were actually shot dead in the streets, and that was the way they, that they, they took control of the city government. And um, by 1905, when this... When these events occurred, uh, the the city government, the court system, everything about it was fully in in the control of uh, white supremacists. So that's that that's the environment that these men were, were having to reckon with when they were when they found themselves charged with murder. So when a homicide is committed on the high seas, it's handled by the federal courts. That's true. Which offered a bit more protection for them. It did, yes. The reason that uh, that was useful was because um, you had a federal judge and you had a federal prosecutor who had been appointed several years before by uh, William McKinley, who was had been president in the, around uh, around 1900 and 1901. Uh, and the the political political affiliations are a little bit complicated because um, these white supremacists that I'm describing, they were entirely affiliated with the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party back then was a completely different organization from what it is now. And um, at the time, the Republican Party was seen as uh, somewhat more more sympathetic and more friendly to African Americans and civil rights issues. So the federal judge and the federal prosecutor who had the responsibility of trying this case, you might ordinarily have expected to be maybe a little bit more sympathetic towards black defendants than some other people in Wilmington. But they were limited in how much, how much authority they really had because just about everyone around them was anti-Republican and anti-black. Anti it's also interesting that the defense attorneys who ended up being appointed to represent these guys in court were white Democrats who, in fact, had, uh, who had long-standing family ties in Wilmington and they had relatives who had actually taken part in the insurrection several years before. And they were the ones now defending these black, black murder defendants. So it was a, it was really, really interesting uh, sort of a role reversal for a lot of the people involved in the case. The victims of these murders were not local to North Carolina, you write. Uh, no family connections, which probably tempered things. 
Well, that is true. Yeah, uh, the victims and the defendants, none of them were actually Wilmington locals. And like I said, it's, it was only by chance that the, the murders took place off the coast of North Carolina, and so that's why the, the case was heard there. Um, the, the four white officers who died, as far as I can tell, they were all from New England. And the, the three black men who were put on trial, one of them, his name was Henry Scott. He was from either Baltimore or Philadelphia. The, the accounts differ on that. But the other two, uh, their names were Arthur Adams and Robert Sawyer, and they were actually from the Caribbean region. One of them was from the Bahamas, and the other was from the island of St. Vincent, which is further down in the Caribbean island chain. So nobody was local, as far as that goes. So a hearing was held pretty quickly to sort out the facts of the case. Can you walk us through that hearing? Who took the stand, and what were the conflicting accounts given about what took place on the Berwind. Yeah. Uh, that first hearing is the type of thing that we would, uh, today we would call it sort of like a, a probable cause hearing where the, the government and the defense, they basically put on their witnesses to get a, to present a general idea of what's being alleged in the case. And, um, when that occurred, the, um, the officers from the, the King, the, that was the vessel that uh, that um, intercepted the Berwind offshore. They took the stand and they testified to what they found on board the ship, the the weapons and the the dead body and the blood stains and so forth. And at that point, the three men who were still alive, Scott, Adams, and Sawyer, all three of them took the stand and they told their stories as well. And it was immediately clear that two there were two differing versions of uh, of what happened. Adams and Sawyer, they told the same story, and they were they were remarkably consistent about it throughout. Uh, they maintained that Henry Scott was the one who was entirely responsible for the for the murders. He was the one who apparently smuggled some pistols on board the vessel without their knowledge, and he seized the opportunity uh, early one morning while uh, while he was on on duty on deck, and he pulled his guns and he decided to start shooting and he methodically went through the went through the ship uh hunting down the officers one by one and uh shooting them to death and uh tossing their bodies overboard and adams and sawyer maintained that uh, scott also threatened them uh held them under the gun and told them that if they didn't cooperate or if they tried to interfere that he would kill them as well so they maintained that they were they were forced to uh stand by and let it happen they also claimed that it was not until later, after several hours had passed, and after Scott had killed all four of the officers as well as Coakley, that they had that they had an opportunity to tackle him, subdue him, and um, take his guns away, and tie him up. And then that's how the that's how the men from the King found the scene when they came aboard the vessel. Uh, Scott, for his part, he basically flipped flipped the script on the other two guys. He said, "No, no, they're lying." It was the two of them and Coakley, the dead man, who actually conspired together to commit all the murders. And Scott claimed that he was the one who objected. And Scott claimed that uh, the other three guys tackled him and tied him down when he tried to interfere with their plans to kill kill the officers. So two, two different versions of the events, completely 180 degrees contradictory to each other. So... The question was, who was telling the truth and who was lying? 
and we'll be right back. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have returned. What did each side say was the motive for the murders. Well, as the way that Adams and Sawyer told it, they claimed that Scott had this sort of harebrained idea that he wanted to take control of the vessel and kill all the officers and uh, then somehow bring the ship ashore into port and make up a story that the, uh, that the ship had been overtaken by a storm and all the officers had drowned. And then if they could convince the port authorities to believe this, then these, these sailors would be able to claim salvage rights to the vessel and they would receive a financial reward for bringing the vessel into port and salvaging the cargo and so forth. Um, Adams and Sawyer claimed that uh, that's what Scott had in mind, but they, they also claimed that they objected to that and they said, well, there's no way that the people in port would ever believe that. 
and they're not going to give any prize money to four black guys. And so they claimed that they thought the they thought Scott's plan was a uh, was ridiculous and so forth. And also that uh, it was around that time when um, they finally were able to tackle Scott and take him down and um, apprehend him and so forth. Um, Scott, as you might imagine, told a completely different different version of that story. He claimed that uh, the other three guys were the other three sailors were in on it all together, and he was the one who objected to the silly plan and so forth. So the, the two stories were basically mirror images of each other. So the commissioners at this hearing concluded that there were sufficient grounds to indict all three men for murder on the high seas. Yes. And after that, they, uh, uh, they did that essentially because uh, there was no way to tell exactly who was telling the truth. And the assumption was that, uh, you know, we've got four, we got four dead white men and three black men who were still remaining alive on board. Their working assumption was that all three of them probably were in on it together in some way. So all three were indicted and then all three of them were placed on trial for the murder and the mutiny. And the trials began approximately three weeks after that preliminary hearing because the, uh, the system worked, worked a lot faster back in those days. So Adams and Sawyer were to be tried together, and Scott would follow. Correct, yes. So who were the defending attorneys for the trio, and did they willingly represent their clients? Well, I know they were appointed, and I don't know exactly what compensation they received. It couldn't have been much. And I, I seriously doubt that either of them really were very happy about being appointed in the cases. Adams and Sawyer had the same attorney, and uh, his name was uh, his name was uh, George Pescow, and he was he came from a prominent Wilmington family, had been active in Democratic and white supremacist politics for several years. And Scott's attorney, uh, his name was William Bellamy, he also came from a very prominent Wilmington family. And his uncle, in fact, was a, the congressman who represented Wilmington at the time. And he had longstanding Democratic and, as you might imagine, white supremacist roots. So here they were being appointed to represent these black murder defendants. So you can't imagine that they were happy about being handed this, this particular task. But I was surprised, frankly, that they, when the time came for the trials, you know, even though it was a... A rel- the trials were a relatively rushed affair. Everyone appeared to do their job well enough. I mean, the defense attorneys, they didn't, uh, they didn't just sit by and let their clients be railroaded. I mean, they, were, they knew that the juries were going to be stacked against them, but they did everything they could, and they filed the proper defense motions, and they argued the cases as best they could. So, it's, uh, frankly, I was, li- I was a little surprised by that. So, in the Adams and Sawyer murder trial. Some of the first witnesses included Captain Taylor of, of the King, the Scooter the King, and his first mate, a man named Theodore Simmons. Simmons said that he had discovered a black jack in Scott's room, and that black jack was, was present in the courtroom during their trial. What was the significance of that black jack and uh, uh, maybe you could talk about that and some of the other important pieces of evidence on display for the jury to see. Well, it tended to, uh, to suggest premeditation on someone's part. 
although it wasn't entirely clear exactly who. But, um, you know, the sailors from the King, they, they came aboard and they told the same story about how they, what they found on board the vessel when they found it. They also talked about the contents of the, of the ship's log. And uh, there was, uh, it was clear that there had been several instances where uh, the captain or the first mate had, uh, had disciplined Henry Scott because he had been insubordinate and he was causing trouble. He was uh, fussing about the quality of the food and uh, on board. And uh, he was, he was having, he was having conflicts with some of the, with the officers. And so that tended to establish that there was, uh, there was already some discord taking place on board the vessel. Um, Sawyer actually had been written up a couple of times as well, although it seemed like Scott was the, the bitter troublemaker. But uh, the government, at least at, at first when Adams and Sawyer were put on trial, the, uh, the prosecutor put Henry Scott on the stand, and he, um, they just got him to tell the story, tell his story, and he was the prosecution witness, talked about how all the other sailors had been in on the plan from the beginning, and he had been left out, and he had not taken part in the murders at all, and they tackled him and tied him up when he objected and so forth. So in the end, uh, after Scott testified and after the, uh, the government rested its case, Adam and Sawyer then took a stand in their own defense, and they told their story, the same story that they had told in the preliminary hearing. And they said, no, it's, uh, that's entirely false. They said Scott was the one who committed the murders, and we were the ones who tried to stop him, and so forth. So that was the first trial. Uh, it lasted about uh, a total of two days. It was a rel relatively uh, truncated affair. And the jury deliberated, and they came back with a, with a guilty verdict. Now, one of the questions during the trial was, why didn't Adams and Sawyer stop Scott right away as soon as he had committed the first murder? Why did they let him continue to kill and only stop him when he was finished disposing of the officers? Well, the way Adams and Sawyer told it, they said, well... The simple fact was that uh, Scott had two, he was carrying two pistols with him and Adams and Sawyer, they had no guns and they were being threatened, threatened with being shot. And there was simply no way that they could um, take Scott down and, or prevent him from, from going on this rampage until they had to, until several hours later when they were able to get close enough to him and seize the opportunity and tackle him. And you also have to consider the logistics of the ship itself. You know, the ship was still sailing along, and somebody had to somebody had to keep their hands on the wheel of the vessel, and somebody had to tend tend the uh, the sails and the rigging and so forth. Otherwise, the vessel was going to veer off course and head out into the open Atlantic, and they'd be stranded. Uh, bear in mind that the uh, the officers had all been killed, and they were the only ones who really had any any navigational skills at all. These uh, the sailors, they were. They were not the ones who steered the ship and guided it and were familiar with handling the maps and the compasses and that type of thing. So uh, Adams and Sawyer maintained that the only thing they could do was just try to try to avoid being shot themselves by Scott and then later on try to tackle him when they had their first opportunity. So as far as they were concerned, they were just in a desperate situation. So, so interestingly, Captain Taylor, while he was testifying against Adams and Sawyer, outside the courtroom, he was in the midst of a, a salvage claim for the Berwind. Do you think his testimony 
was affected by his pursuit of this claim? Well, that's that's another thing that I do that I do touch on. Um, we've talked about salvage claims. The men on board the King also, because they were the ones who intercepted the Berwyn and they succeeded in bringing it ashore and salvaging the cargo that it was carrying. They they were hoping to get some money for themselves as well, but the legality of their claim was based upon the question of whether there really was a mutiny and whether all of the, the men on board the Berwyn had taken part in the mutiny. Because um, unless, unless everyone, all of the crew on board the Berwyn was either dead or complicit in the criminal act, then there would be no grounds for the men on board the King to assert a salvage claim. It gets a little bit complicated there, but the gist of it is that uh, the men on board the King including Captain Simmons, may have had a motive to try to get all three of the, of the sailors who were charged convicted of the murders and the mutiny. So after the jury was finished deliberating, um, I think you write that they were out about two hours or so. They came back with their verdict, guilty, and Adams and Sawyer were sentenced right away. Yes, they were Adams and Sawyer. They were found guilty, and they were immediately sentenced to death by hanging, which was the—I uh, mean, it was the—it was the automatic penalty for for murder, murder at the time. And Henry Scott's trial started like immediately after their sentencing. Yes, and again, this just go, goes to show how 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 truncated and expedited this whole process was. And it shows how how much the judge and the prosecutor really wanted to get it over and done with as soon as they could. But uh, immediately after after Adams and Sawyer were sentenced, uh, the judge recessed court for about half an hour, and then he called everybody back and he put twelve more jurors in the in the jury box and within within an hour they had started the trial of, of Henry Scott. And uh, at this point uh, the prosecutor, Mr. Skinner, he opened his case by bringing Adams and Sawyer into court, and they took the stand now as prosecution witnesses. You know, even though Skinner had just, he had just gotten death sentences against them only hours beforehand, uh, now Adams and Sawyer were his witnesses as he was trying to convict Scott of the same thing. So he put Adams and Sawyer back on the stand, and they just told the same story that they had earlier in their own trial, and um, after that, Scott took the stand again, this time in his defense, and told the same story, mostly the same story. And uh, so it just, it just goes to show how, um, how, how much the, uh, the prosecutor really was relying on the anti, I, I hate to put it this way, but the, the anti-black bias of the jurors. Um, I mean, here, here he was, I mean, the prosecutor, he was presenting two different cases just within hours of each other. And the two, the two factual scenarios were just were completely 180 degrees different. So you might say that the, uh, the prosecutor, in fact, was being as, was being extremely two-faced and duplicitous in the way that he was presenting this. But he wasn't really concerned because he knew that the jurors who were serving on the serving on the cases, they were white men and they were from Eastern North Carolina, and he knew exactly what their political bent was, and he knew that they were going to be they would be inclined to convict any any black man who was charged with uh, killing a white man. I mean, it, it was really just a very, a very cynical exercise on the prosecutor's part. 
And I mean, he did ultimately succeed in, um, in getting guilty verdicts against all three men. But what's really surprising, and this is really the essence of the entire book, and that's why I thought it was so fascinating, is that even though the jurors found them guilty, a lot of people who were listening to the testimony carefully, they really thought about it and they, they thought, well, you know, this just isn't right. They thought there was a difference between Scott's story and the story told by Adams and Sawyer. And they really thought that Adams and Sawyer sounded a lot more credible. And they thought that something about Henry Scott just didn't sit right. And they thought that he was making it up. And they eventually they came to conclude that Scott probably really was the murderer and Adam and Sawyer probably were not. And they had been wrongly charged and wrongly convicted. And so I may be getting ahead of myself here, but that's where the that's really where the story goes from there on. And the obvious injustice of all of this is that in both trials, each party was found guilty, yet, as you point out, the stories that led to their convictions were contradictory. And in each standalone story, the opposing party would have been found innocent. Very true. I mean, there, there was no way that they could both be correct. And, you know, after the trials were over and after all three men were sentenced to death, the, um, the national media national newspaper started to started to pick up this pick up on this and say well you know something's going wrong here because it looks like three men have been sentenced to death but one way or another somebody's going to be hanged unjustly because uh, i think one the way that one of the papers phrased it they said the two stories cannot be harmonized if one story is right the other is wrong and either either scott will die unjustly, or Adams and Sawyer will die unjustly. Adams and Sawyer's attorney then filed an appeal in an attempt to save them from the gallows, but Scott's attorney did not, correct? Yes. Scott's attorney, uh, Mr. Bellamy, I, can, I think he realized all along that his, uh, his client was guilty as hell. And he really didn't want didn't want to expend any further <clears throat> any further efforts on uh, Mr. Scott's behalf. I mean, after the trial was over. I mean, he did well enough during the trial. He filed all the motions and he made the right arguments. But he knew his client was guilty. the The attorney for uh, Adams, Adams and Sawyer, uh, Mr. Pescal, he did file the appeal for his clients because I think he he knew that there was there was some some popular support building in Wilmington for his clients. Because, and this is something that the, actually the Wilmington newspapers reported on during the trials. They said, well, you know, these, these two guys, Adams and Sawyer, it's, it's really interesting that they're able to keep their stories together. And they seem, they seem really honest and they seem, they seem pretty straightforward in the, in the way that they express themselves. I hate to talk about, the, talk about it this way, but they, the newspapers... You know, described this in really demeaning language in a way because they, they talked about these two black men who seem so simple-minded and dull-witted and so forth. And so just the fact that they're able to keep their story straight must mean that they're probably telling the truth because they're not smart enough to make up, a, make up an elaborate story or so forth. Whereas they also commented on Henry Scott, who seemed, he just seemed really unusually smart for a black guy. And it, again, this is a horrible thing to say, and I, I hate to even even describe it this way, uh, but I guess there's no other way to do it. 
but Scott seemed really very self-assured, a little bit cocky on the stand. He, he cracked jokes here and there when he was trying to tell the story. He was talking about uh, people being shot and so forth, and that, that rubbed people the wrong way. And again, people, people started, to, started to think, well, you know, if he's, if he's this clever, then he's probably lying about something. And the, the newspapers actually reported on this, and they, they commented on it as the, as the testimony was, was proceeding. And eventually, some of the Wilmington newspapers came, came around and they, they said, well, you know, these guys, Adams and Sawyer, they're probably not guilty and they probably don't deserve to hang. And that was really surprising to me because these were the same newspapers who, just seven years earlier in 1898, they had been essentially mouthpieces for the white supremacist movement. And they had, they frankly had been very enthusiastic about that insurrection that occurred in 1898, which saw about 60 people shot dead in the streets. And so that's, that's what surprised me really was that they, they even bothered to, you know, write about this and to express sympathy for these two black guys who had been charged with killing four white people. And one, one of the papers actually commented on their editorial page. They, they gave the, um, you know, the, the classic line about how it's better for, it's better for a hundred guilty men to go free than for one innocent man to be hanged unjustly, which is a, a common sentiment, of course. But yeah, it was surprising to me to hear, hear these newspapers talking that way after they essentially had, had endorsed this extrajudicial insurrection that occurred several years before that saw 60 people dead in the streets. So that was, that was really fascinating to me, I thought. So in order for the appeals process to play out for Sawyer and Adams, Scott's execution needed to be delayed because he was the star witness yes. and might need to testify in a new trial. Yes, that's true. So um, Adams and Sawyer, their attorney, they brought in, uh, they, they took the case all, all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, in fact. And they brought in another attorney from Wilmington who was probably the best known lawyer in town maybe the smartest as well. He had a Harvard degree and his name was George Roundtree. His father-in-law had been the attorney general of the Confederate States of all things. And in fact, George Roundtree himself had been one of the ringleaders of the insurrection in 1898, but he actually came on board and he represented Adam, Adams and Sawyer. And he was the one who took their case to the U S Supreme court. Now that's, that's pretty fascinating. I think, um, they didn't win before the Supreme Court simply because the rules at the time were different. Uh, the Supreme, the federal courts weren't really looking at racial issues at the time. They didn't consider things like what was the composition of the jury? Uh, was there racial prejudice in the courtroom and that type of thing? Uh, it wasn't until the 1930s and really until the 50s and 60s that appellate courts really started to look at the elements of due process and so forth. So they did not win in the Supreme Court. But um, even so, Adams and Sawyer and the people who were supporting, supporting them, they didn't give up, and they sought presidential clemency from Theodore Roosevelt, who was in the White House at the time. And this case reached Roosevelt, uh, again, as you've said, because public sentiment had started to turn. And one of the reasons it started to turn was that, in, in a strange twist, a couple of mysterious letters turned up at the Wilmington jail. 
Oh, yes. Well, as it turned out, Henry Strott received a couple of uh, anonymous letters that were sent to him by somebody. We don't know who. But they were, they were alleging that uh, Scott had taken part in some, some other murders that supposedly had occurred in Alabama or Georgia years before. And as you might imagine, the jailers were reading, reading the prisoner's mail. And when they saw this, they thought, well, you know, this is probably a hoax, but there's a chance that it might not be. So we really need to look into this. And so the prosecutor and the jailer, they, uh, they did something a little duplicitous here which is really not too surprising, but they, they got up with this, uh, this Episcopal priest, this African-American uh, priest who lived in Wilmington and who had been ministering to all three of these guys as they were, as they were incarcerated. But they went to the priest and they, they, they used him to, tr- to try to try to pry some information out of Scott to see if, uh, see if there was any truth to these allegations that were being made. And we don't know exactly what the priest said to Henry Scott, but a few days later, um, the priest went back to the prosecutor and the jailer, and, and he said, uh, Scott has something he wants to say. He wants to give a confession to the crime. Again, I don't know exactly how this came about and what the priest said to him, but uh, within a few days, Henry Scott had given a written confession to the, the murders on board the Burwind, and he said, uh, yeah, I did it. And he was uh, he was still kind of vague. He uh, he he gave a he gave a uh, a story of the events, which frankly was different from what he had what he had claimed earlier. He changed a bunch of a bunch of the details, and he made it sound a lot more dramatic than he had than he had previously. But um, he did come around, and he said, "I did the killing, and Adams and Sawyer did not, and they are innocent men." So. As you might imagine, this was a godsend for the people who were who were supporting Adams and Sawyer, and uh, they took this new information. They took Scott's confession to the White House, and they used that to support their clemency petition. Back in a moment. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. And we have returned once more. So Henry Scott's execution went on as planned. Yes, it did. And he remained calm to the end, uh, even offering some words of wisdom to the crowd that had assembled to watch him die. Yeah, it was it was a very interesting scene because he uh, he basically gave a speech from the gallows right as they were about to put the rope around his neck and he said, "Well, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna repeat the the full the full text of it, but he said, I want all you people, black and white, to listen to me and live upright lives and know that uh, I have I have decided to spare the lives of Adams and Sawyer, and they would also be hanged if it were not for me." And I'm the only one who had the power to save their lives and so forth. It was a, just a very, 
looking at it now, it, it seemed like a very, a very narcissistic display on his part um, because he was um, he was taking credit for the murders and at the same time he was taking credit for saving the lives of the men whom he had testified against falsely previously. But uh, anyway, after he finished giving his speech, he they put the rope around his neck and he was hanged, and so that was the end of Mr. Scott. And uh, from that point forward, the uh, there was still a, a mad rush going on to try to get uh, get clemency for Adams and Sawyer. So President Roosevelt, he was a little reluctant to get involved in racial issues in the South. You write, he had ruffled some Southern feathers when he had invited. Uh, Booker T. Washington to the White House for dinner. Yes, yeah, yeah. Theodore Roosevelt. I mean, he was he was ambivalent at best about race, and this is um, this is one thing that's not not as well known. But uh, you know, his mother's family was actually from Georgia originally, and he had two two uncles who had served in the Confederate Navy during the Civil War. So he had, even though he grew up, his his father's family was from New York City, uh, was had. Uh, lived in New York state for generations and had uh, generated their wealth in New York. But he had, uh, he had family loyalty on both sides and he had never been known for being particularly sympathetic towards African-Americans. There was the one incident that you, that you mentioned uh, very early in his presidency where he, he invited Booker T. Washington to have dinner with him at the white house. And it caused such an uproar, especially among Southern congressional representatives that he never did anything like that again. And he made it a point never to seem too, too friendly towards African-American causes in public. So that's, that's one thing that made it, made it such a surprise that eventually he, after, after much delay and a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, equivocating back and forth, he did actually grant clemency to Adams and Sawyer. Uh, he didn't, he did not pardon them. He did not declare them innocent. All he did was uh, he just commuted their sentences from death to life in prison. And as to why he did it, I can only imagine that it's, it's because he had so many people, so many people from Wilmington who were, who were vouching for them, both black and white. Uh, there were, their clemency petition was signed by a number of people who actually had taken part in the Wilmington insurrection of 1898, uh, including the ringleader who had been probably as responsible as anyone else for, for the killings. But, uh, for whatever reason, just because they thought it was the right thing to do, they stood up for, for Adams and Sawyer and signed their clemency petition, and the president took it seriously. So what was life like for them in federal prison, and where were they incarcerated? Well, they were sent off to the federal prison in Atlanta. And as you might imagine, it was a, uh, it was a type of prison, well, any, any prison back then was going to be harsh. Uh, it, was a, it was a manual labor regimen. And it was a type type of place where prisoners were sent out to either either work on industrial sites or to work on farms. And uh, uh, the sentence was life imprisonment at hard labor, and that's what it that's what it amounted to. So uh, they did not have a comfortable existence in prison. But here again, there's a, a difference in federal jurisdiction and state jurisdiction because they were in federal prison. There was much more of a paper trail when it came to record keeping. And they, they were allowed uh, male privileges, for one thing, and all of that was maintained, the records and so forth. And because of that, because I was able to go into the, the prison records, which have been maintained since then in the National Archives, 
I know who they were writing their letters to and so forth. And therefore, I know that they were able to keep up correspondence with not only their families, but also a lot of people in Wilmington who had been who had been friendly to them. And they kept talking about, you know, how can we how can we get out? How can we do another clemency petition? How can we find more evidence that will support our innocence so that we can get out of prison? I mean, they didn't they didn't give up. I mean, even though they uh, it. Frankly, it was a it was a minor miracle that they were able to evade the death penalty in the first place. But even after that, they didn't um, they they still maintained hope that they might might be able to get out of prison eventually. So they get some unlikely help, right, from a man connected to Hollywood named Henry Warner, who suddenly became interested in the case. Yes, and this is just another another remarkable. Uh, twist and turn in the case, in this whole series of weird twists and turns. But uh, Henry Warner was a uh, a stage actor at the time. He was a he was really popular, uh, especially for his uh, his portrayals of um, yeah, of uh, characters in uh, in plays that were written by O. Henry, uh, William Sidney Porter, who was one of the one of the popular authors at the time. But um, this Mr. Warner, he was a British actor. But he also he also did a lot of work in um, in the U.S. He was uh, popular on the New York stage. But uh, Mr. Warner announced uh, publicly that um, he had a he had an interest in um, prison reform, and he he told the press that he was going to dedicate the proceeds from one of his one of his performances to assisting men who had been sentenced to life prison terms to help them help them with their with their legal affairs and i'm not sure exactly how this happened but uh, adams and sawyer became aware of this there must have been some some friendly person either within the prison or on the outside who tipped them off about this but adams and sawyer then wrote a letter to mr warner and told them told him about their about their predicament the fact that they had been in prison for several years now for a crime that they claimed they did not commit and they told him about Scott and how he had confessed to the crime and so forth. And Mr. Warner, the actor, apparently was really, really moved by this. And he, he decided he was going to bring in his own, his own attorney to do an investigation of the case and see what he could do on their behalf. So the attorney working for Mr. Warner, then he traveled to Wilmington, interviewed a bunch of people, um, including the judge and the prosecutor, and eventually got them to come around and declare that they would be, even the judge and the prosecutor said that they would be, they would be willing to see the men pardoned eventually. So as a result of that, uh, Mr. Warner's attorney then put together another clemency petition, which now was taken to the new president, William Howard Taft, who also had never been known as being particularly, particularly friendly towards on civil rights or African-American issues or that type of thing. But he, he ended up reviewing a, a second clemency petition on behalf of Adam Sawyer. And at this point, the British embassy got involved because, um, you know, Mr. Warner, the actor, was British. And another, uh, another factor in the case is that, uh, you know, since uh, Adams and Sawyer themselves were, they were British subjects because they had been born in British territories in the Caribbean. They had never become American citizens. So Mr. Warner enlisted the British embassy and the British ambassador to essentially lobby the White House for President Taft to issue a second clemency in the case. 
which again, it took a while. It took some, there was some reluctance on the president's part, but he eventually committed their sentences again. And they likely never went to sea again, right? Well, as far as we know, uh, I don't know exactly where they went after that, but the key thing is that in 1912, uh, President Taft did in fact commute their sentences. Here again, it's, 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 it's kind of, it's really frustrating here because he didn't pardon them. He did not declare them innocent. He said in his, uh, in his decision that I don't think they're entirely innocent, but they were not, they're not completely guilty or at least less guilty than Mr. Scott was. And so because of that, they should not, they should not serve any more time in prison. So he just commuted their sentences a second time, this time from life imprisonment to time served, which meant that they were released from prison. So after, after being in there for about six years. Do you know who eventually profited from the Berwind? Um, was money ever made from it? Not that I'm aware of. No. Um, it, uh, the, um, and actually, this is another another subtext to the case. Just as uh, as this second clemency petition was pending, uh, some of the uh, the officials from the shipping company that owned the Berwind they tried to interfere in the process because they they started making some new claims that um, that they had never made before. They claimed that Adam and Sawyer had made had made threats against other other officials of the uh, the shipping company previously, and they did this probably. Trying to uh, trying to forestall any possibility that um, if Adams and Sawyer were to be freed and released from and released from prison, then they might make a claim against the shipping company for back wages. So, again, you've got you've got so many different so many different motives uh, going back and forth, uh, and you have to really ask yourself, well, who really has the greater motive to to lie here? Um, and you have to kind of weigh the different weigh the different stories back and forth. But um, no, as far as I know, there were not any, no one ever received a salvage award related to the vessel. What is the legacy of this case, in your opinion? Well, like I said, I'm amazed that it's not better known. Uh, I, was, I was really shocked to come across it just because of the way it ended. Um, you know, knowing everything that we now know about Eastern North Carolina and Wilmington in particular in that era, you know, it's um, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to imagine how three African-American men facing the charges that they were facing at the time in that time and place really could have gotten any measure of justice from the court system in Wilmington at the time. Now, you might say that um, in the end, they didn't really get justice because even though Adams and Sawyer were released from prison, uh, they still, they still had a murder conviction on their records for the rest of their lives. But, you know, the fact that they, that they were able to present their cases in court and be believed in the way that they were and to gain sympathy from people in Wilmington who had been so, so virulent, virulently racist in the past is, is really remarkable. So I would love it if you could tell us a bit about your other book, uh, The Senator's Son. Uh, could you give us a synopsis of that story? Oh, definitely, yeah. Um, that was another case that took place in eastern North Carolina, um, actually around exactly the same time it occurred in 1905. But it's about a, um, a child kidnapping. It's about a young boy 
His name was Kenneth Beasley. He was eight years old at the time. And he lived in a little um, farming community in eastern North Carolina. And he disappeared very mysteriously. Um, he was attending this little uh, two-room schoolhouse uh, near where he lived. And one day at recess, while he was at school, he was playing with his friends in the schoolyard. And then he wandered back into this um, set of woods and swampland back behind it, back behind the schoolhouse. And he, uh, he went missing right there, and um, he was, they, uh, the folks gathered around, and they tried, they went searching through the woods, and they tried to find him, but uh, they couldn't find him. He disappeared very mysteriously, and no one could figure out what, uh, what happened to him. The interesting thing is that Kenneth, the boy who disappeared, uh, was the son of a, uh, the state senator who represented that area in the North Carolina state legislature at the time. And that's why the, the title of the book is The Senator's Son. And when he went missing, there were rumors that he had been kidnapped by a man who had a political grudge against the boy's father. And it's, uh, it's a little mysterious in that um, these rumors were flying around for, for quite some time. Uh, the boy went missing and they couldn't find him. And everyone was wondering what happened and so forth. People were gossiping about this, this man whose name was Harrison who supposedly had a had grudge against his against Kenneth's father. The the primary issue was that um, Mr. Harrison was reputed to be a bootlegger. He was a producer of uh, illicit liquor, and Sen Senator Beasley was very much in favor of prohibition in the state legislature at the time. But uh, anyway, Mr. Harrison, the alleged bootlegger, he had some political conne connections of his own. He had a brother-in-law who was a former governor of North Carolina. But he was sort of a, uh, a black sheep of that family, you might say. So there were rumors floating about Mr. Harrison, but nothing happened for about a year and a half until all of a sudden Mr. Harrison was charged with the kidnapping, and he went to trial. And he was, uh, he was well represented. He had some, uh, his, his brother-in-law came into court and on his behalf, and he had some uh, very, uh, very well-qualified uh, attorneys to represent him, but he was found guilty. And... Um, Shortly after that, he uh, he took the case to the North Carolina Supreme Court. He tried to tried to get his conviction overturned, but that didn't happen. And he was he realized he was going to have to serve a serve a prison term. And eventually, he committed suicide. He left a, left behind a suicide note saying that uh, I'm innocent. I had nothing to do with the disappearance of that child, but I can't go to prison. And so goodbye, cruel world. And he shot himself. They never found the child. Uh, it's still a it's still a, a lingering mystery. Uh, more than a hundred years later. But what I did in the book is I went, I went back through the details of the case and I talked about the logistics of how it went down and what likely happened. And I, I think I figured out what probably happened. Very cool. Sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. So how can people connect with you? How can they buy your book? All right. Well, the best way to order a copy of, uh, of either book, in fact, would be through my publisher. And my publisher is based in Richmond, Virginia. It's called Beach Glass Books. And um, that's, uh, well, that's the most straightforward way to, uh, to place an order, obviously. And I can provide you with the, uh, the links on that. Uh, it's also available on Kindle and Audible as well. Perfect. Well, thank you for spending some time with us. This has been really interesting. Well, well thank you for having me. Can't thank you enough. Again, I've been speaking to Charles Oldham, author of Ship of Blood. 
mutiny and slaughter aboard the Harry Aberwind, and the quest for justice. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.